From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It has been an eventful month. The House of Representatives' impeachment inquiry into President Trump has become a font of high-profile depositions, bombshells, attacks, and counterattacks. Further action on impeachment may well hang on four words in the U.S. Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, to help us understand what that meant then and now, and for more on the impeachment process, we're calling on Dr. Buckner F. Melton, Jr., He's professor of history and political science at Middle Georgia State and author of The First Impeachment. Dr. Melton, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. So according to the Constitution, what is an impeachable offense? The Constitution says that the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States are liable to impeachment for, and this is a quotation, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason and bribery are pretty straightforward, but of course, as you mentioned a moment ago, high crimes and misdemeanors is the $64,000 question. Yeah, so what qualifies as high crimes and misdemeanors? I have no idea, and I'm sure you like hearing that from a specialist. The phrase uh, goes back at least to the 1640s in English history, and it might go back a couple of centuries even before that. And, of course, many of the founders were lawyers and had studied English law. And when they were deciding in the Philadelphia Convention what would be impeachable, one of the founders suggested maladministration. And others objected that that would would mean pleasure of the Senate. Whatever the Senate decided they didn't like, they could impeach for. And so instead of using maladministration, they substituted this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. And other than that, we really don't know what the founders meant by it. Of course, the big question is, does crime mean crime? Does it require an actual indictable offense? And a lot of debate has centered around that. Yeah, the question here is whether an ordinary criminality, let's say, is different than high crimes and misdemeanors. So, So how do you gauge that? Historically, how have these words been interpreted? There have been federal judges in the several impeachments that we have had that have probably been convicted for things that were not indictable offenses. The first one that immediately comes to mind is federal judge John Pickering in 1803-1804, who simply had a case of senility and, and alcoholism, and they couldn't figure out any other way to get him out. So even though he committed no actual criminal offense, he was found guilty. So that certainly established the precedent, right or wrong, that you can be removed for something that might not be an indictable crime. Of course, he was just a federal judge with a lifetime appointment, and things might be different for an elected president. So where, how is the criminality defined here different that, than what is at stake or on trial in a regular criminal trial? That's the interesting point, because neither the Constitution nor the debates in the Federal Convention tried to give any further definition of that phrase. Now, some of the scholarly debate raises questions such as, what if the president were simply jaywalking? Is that a crime? Is it a high crime? Is it something that we should remove the president for? Uh, Another example would be, let's say the president simply takes Air Force One to Tahiti and sits on the beach drinking pina coladas and refuses to do his job. That's not an indictable offense, but many people argue it would certainly be an impeachable one.
One of the examples that we do have is Richard Nixon. He was not ultimately impeached, but there were three articles of impeachment against him from the House Judiciary Committee, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and the third, defying House subpoenas during its impeachment investigation. So obviously, number three is not alleging a crime. So who decides? Ultimately, it is the Senate who decides. Uh, There's a popular misconception that impeachment means to throw out. And the word impeachment technically means something akin to an indictment, a formal charge or accusation. And that's what we see the House of Representatives doing. That's the House's job. Whereas if there actually is an impeachment, then the senators will sit as judge and jury. And ultimately, it is the senators' collective decision as to what amounts to high crimes or misdemeanors. Make sure I understand. The House of Representatives has sole power of bringing impeachment. Senate has sole power to try impeachments. Yes, exactly. And you have seen some very controversial statements about that. Uh, President Gerald Ford, before he was president, while he was in the House, once gave the very cynical definition of high crimes and misdemeanors as anything that the House impeaches for and anything that two-thirds of the senators will vote to convict for, Mm -hmm. because it does require a two-thirds supermajority vote to convict. There are critics that say the Senate today, Congress is mired in gridlock with many matters not even making it to the Senate floor. Could the Senate treat impeachment in the same way and just choose not to hold an impeachment trial? Well, once again, if you look at the constitutional text, it states explicitly the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. It doesn't say the Senate has the duty to try impeachments. So the specter has been raised of the Senate doing to an impeachment preferred against President Trump essentially what it did with uh, President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland a few years ago to be a justice of the Supreme Court. It simply took no action. I suppose that technically the Senate is within its uh, within its authority to do that, but the senators might have to wrestle with public opinion on that and ultimately the voters in the voting booth. We're talking about the constitutional foundations of impeachment with Dr. Buckner Melton, professor of history and political science at Middle Georgia State University and author of The First Impeachment. Well, presidents are not the only ones who can be impeached. Which other offices are at risk? Certainly presidents and vice presidents, and they are, list, they are listed by name in the Constitution, and civil officers of the United States. And this has traditionally been extended to include federal judges. And there have been roughly half a dozen federal judges who have been removed by the impeachment process. A secretary of war has been charged, but I believe he resigned before the process went through. Uh, A Supreme Court justice was, in fact, impeached, but he was acquitted. And a United States senator, who was, in fact, the first impeachment, that's what the subject of my book is, and the Senate dismissed that one for a lack of jurisdiction. And that has usually been taken to mean that members of Congress are not impeachable, despite what President Trump was saying a few weeks ago about certain congressmen needing to be impeached. You mentioned that the concept of impeachment and high crimes and misdemeanors were derived somewhat from parliamentary language. So what do we know about the impeachment process and what it was meant or how it was meant to be used when the Constitution was being written? In England, there was always a tension between the power of Parliament and the power of the Crown. 
and impeachment was often used as a tool of parliament against the crown, or at least the crown's ministers. And conviction for impeachments in England, which began as early as 1376 or 1386, could entail the death penalty on occasion. So you couldn't bring down a monarch by impeachment necessarily, but you could bring down the officers serving that monarch. So in a way, this was this was the first time this had ever happened, obviously, when the Constitution was drafted. What did that mean in the thinking? What, what do we know about the thinking that went behind that? Well, there was a fear that the president could be misled by officials who were corrupt, and even the president himself could therefore become liable to impeachment. We did limit it very sharply compared to the English process because the Constitution says that only removal from office and perhaps disqualification uh, at the discretion of the Senate. These are the only two possible penalties for an impeachment. There can't be incarceration. There can't be the death penalty. And that raises the interesting question of whether or not impeachment itself is actually a criminal proceeding. And there are strong divisions of opinion on that as well. The current impeachment inquiry began in September. This was after a whistleblower wrote to both congressional intelligence committees that President Trump was using the power of his office to solicit interference by a foreign government in a U.S. election. Since then, part of the debate has swirled over whether the whistleblower, a CIA officer, must reveal his identity. We know it's a male. What are the arguments surrounding this constitutionally? In the House of Representatives, the Constitution says that the House has the sole power of impeachment. Interestingly enough, the House has not always followed these careful precedents and and attempted to extend due process. As a matter of fact, for the first century, it was invariable that the House would vote an impeachment first and only then, sometimes months later, write the formal articles of impeachment. So... President Trump's arguments that the the House is not following the law are a little bit weak in that regard. Now, if impeachment is, in fact, a criminal process, once you get to the Senate, once you actually have the actual trial going on, there may be a Sixth Amendment right to confront one's accusers. And in that case, Trump might be on stronger ground. But once again, that's only if impeachment is actually a criminal process. There was also some debate on how the whistleblower complaint was handled, the process. The accusation here is that the inspector general within the Intelligence Committee broke the chain of command to get this complaint out of the Department of Justice over to the House. Is that path constitutionally sound? Well, it certainly raises questions of bias on the part of what we might consider either the prosecutors, the DA, if you will, by analogy, or the grand jurors. If you continue that analogy, defendants or potential defendants have tended to have much fewer rights when it comes to grand jury proceedings than the actual trial in court. And so the House does have more leeway in that regard. I don't think the House is doing itself any favors if it acts in too partisan a manner here, Mm -hmm. because ultimately to convict a president, you really do have to have a bipartisan consensus that something's very, very wrong. The president and his lawyers have been calling into question the legitimacy of this process since the beginning. Dr. Melton, if that strategy continues, what is the logical end here? 
Well, once again, if this is seen as a grand jury proceeding, I'm not sure that the president has a lot of ground to stand on. The more worrisome aspect of this is that what if the president made a claim after being impeached, tried, and convicted that there were procedural irregularities in the Senate? Now, if the Senate were being scrupulously careful to follow its procedures, he would have less ground to stand on. But if there were any impropriety at all, he might have an argument. And the ultimate nightmare scenario is what if he said the conviction was illegitimate and I'm not going, and he filed a lawsuit to try to overturn that. We would not know during the pendency of the lawsuit who our president was. Hmm. I hope it doesn't get to that point, obviously. Well, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that if this were a, a criminal or grand jury trial, if the president had good lawyers, they could argue about irregularities in the trial that led to this. Yes, and the Constitution does use strongly judicial language when talking about impeachments. Impeachments have been used in political ways in the past, but the Constitution speaks of oaths. The senators have to take an oath. It uses the word trial of impeachments. It uses the words judgment and conviction. And so we take from that that the Senate does have to use some sort of judicial process here. And if it were to deviate from that, or even if Trump charged that it had deviated from that, whether or not it had, we could be looking at a constitutional crisis. Dr. Buckner Melton, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Dr. Melton is professor of history and political science at Middle Georgia State University, author of the book, The First Impeachment, and host of Naval History Podcast. Coming up, a recent GSU study delves into the biological impacts of racism and its links to aging. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. <laughs> 